God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, continuing our studies here in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Today we're looking at verses 5 through 12. You can find that on page 962 of our ESVs. You can find also in one of the other inserts in your bulletin this week. Uh, Lord willing, uh, if God is gracious, we'll be done with 1 Corinthians in just a few weeks. Uh, I have planned it for two more sermons, including this one, um, and we'll see if that is actually the plan that holds true. But you can also find that uh, in our session meeting a week and a half ago, the elders approved that following our studies in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be moving to a study of the story of Joseph uh, from Genesis chapters 37 to the end and to 50. Uh, so just taking that one slice of the book of Genesis. And so I'd encourage you, in the few weeks that we have, read through that story. Uh, take a, a leisurely jaunt or write down a few notes, see what the Lord has there, and, and prepare uh, for our time together in the Word uh, in Genesis. But uh, today we are uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. And before we come to read God's Word together, let us go again before His throne of grace in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word which you have given, inspired by your Holy Spirit as you carried holy men of old along, as they wrote down what you inspired them to write. And this is your word, it is living and it is active, it is able to divide between joint and marrow, in spirit and soul, and so we pray that you would divide us today by your word. Lay us bare before you, show us your truth, convict us where conviction is necessary, Bind us up and encourage us where encouragement is possible. Help us to see the glories of Jesus Christ and to feast on His grace for us in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's Word as we find it in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5-12. through 12. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Ascends the reading of God's holy and in errant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. I always get nervous when I have to borrow someone else's car, even if it's just uh, to move it out of the way or to run a quick errand. It's not that I'm worried that I'm a bad driver. It's that extra anxiety of wanting to treat other people's things at least as well as they would want them to be treated, maybe even better. So, you make sure that the car is cleaned out and that the tank is filled before you return it. And the anxiety grows if the car that you're borrowing is significantly nicer than the one that you own. 
Your minivan is in the shop, so you borrow your neighbor's BMW, and you get in there, and that finely tuned German suspension, and that uh, leather interior, and you take things a bit more carefully. Well, as we study our passage today, this is a good place to start, a good analogy for considering why Paul lays out his travel plans the way that he does. This is the kind of passage we can be tempted to overlook. We can read it kind of like the, we, the way that we read those genealogies in the Old Testament. We are convinced that they are there and inspired of the Lord and there's something for us, but we're not entirely sure what. And so we tick our box on 1 Corinthians 16 and we move on to the next thing. But when we start to look at some of the details in this text, we begin to see Paul showing us what it means to treat Christian ministry with a certain seriousness. If we could call it that, a certain holy anxiety that the right thing would be done with something that doesn't belong to him. That's the sense that we get from this text. We, we get the sense that what pastors do and what churches do and what everyday run-of-the-mill Christians do is they serve one another. It's not the sort of thing that belongs to them. Christian ministry doesn't belong to Christians. Christian ministry belongs to Christ. And that means a few things. It means that Christian ministry isn't about self-actualization, is it? Our ministry here isn't about raising the banner of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, so maybe the masses will flock to us, and we can get a nice big website, and we can start a brand, and maybe a blog series, and a YouTube channel, and we can draw in so many people to think that we're really doing well. That's not the point of Christian ministry. Your ministry isn't about existing in just the right community in your neighborhood so that you can create a tiny little bubble to keep the world at bay. Christian ministry isn't about our plans, it's not about our timing, it's not about our comfort. This is true, whether we're talking about full-time vocational ministry or whether we're talking about the ministry that you have, in your home or on your campus, maybe to your co-workers, maybe to those neighbors down the street who you can't seem to remember their names, wherever the Lord has placed you, whatever He's calling you to, if you are a servant of the Lord, you are an ambassador for Christ, and that means you have a ministry, and it also means that that ministry doesn't belong to you. And you need to treat it that way. Ministry always goes better when we treat it as though it doesn't belong to us. When we are careful with what we do because we know that it reflects upon the Lord. This is what we find in the passage today. A lot of the way that we ought to treat ministry comes down to our willingness to have it not be ours. That means a few things. One, that ministry works best when we are willing to serve wherever the Lord is calling us. Ministry works best when you're willing to serve wherever the Lord is calling us and wherever He's working. You know, Paul's ministry was unique in several ways. One, of course, Paul was an apostle, and none of us are apostles. But Paul's ministry was unique also in the sense that he was called to be on a moving ministry. It was part of his call from the very beginning. The Lord said, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was to go around from place to place carrying the gospel and spreading it everywhere. He was to be a sort of Johnny Appleseed covering the landscape with apple trees if he could, to plant churches everywhere that he could go so that fruit would abound and the Lord would be glorified. There's a certain restlessness to Paul's ministry. 
From the account that we have in Acts, and we read a little bit of it today, and we ended in Acts chapter 19, where the word of the Lord is increasing greatly and expanding. But from the account we have in Acts, the longest that Paul ever stayed in one place was two years in Ephesus. This is what he talks about in our passage today, is a wide door for effective work. That was abnormal for Paul to stay that long in one place. Normally, most of the time, Paul's ministry involved deciding where to go next, which Christians needed help, where churches needed to be planted, where he could be of the most use to the kingdom. Now, of course, Paul had his own thoughts and ideas about where he wanted to be. That's what we see in this passage today. He's a man with a calling, but he also has desires. We see it in verse 7, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. He wants to be in Corinth. Now, there's an emphasis here in this passage, not just on the place, not just to be in Corinth, not just to be in a wonderful metropolitan city, but to be with these saints there. Five times in three verses, he takes that pronoun you and he puts it to the center of attention. Now, if we were doing that and we were writing a letter or or something, we'd put it in bold or italics or underlines. Uh, The way that you do that in Greek is by changing the word order, and that's what Paul does. Verses 5 and 6, he says something like, I'm passing through Macedonia, but with you, perhaps, I will stay a while. I'm just moving through there, but with you, I want to stay. Then in verse 7, for I do not desire you now to see in passing. And that's what he's doing. He's telling them, I want to be with you, with the people there. That's my desire. Paul wants to be with them despite all the trouble they had given him, surprisingly. Despite all the factions and the problems they had, Paul wants to be in Corinth. And so here's an apostle with a calling and with desires. And how is he to reconcile these things? What is Paul to do? We find in verse 7 the way that Paul approaches ministry. I do not want to see you now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Folks, that's not just a throwaway phrase the way we can sometimes use it. I've never traveled to a Muslim-majority country, but I have a friend from seminary who did and who spent some time doing ministry in a closed country. One of the things that he mentioned when he came back and we were talking about it He said, you know, the people there are very polite, and it is impolite to turn down an invitation. So if you invite someone to come with you somewhere or to meet you somewhere, and they don't actually want to go, they'll say, if Allah is willing, I will be there. They have no intention of being there, uh, but they sort of cast it off. It's somebody else's fault if they're not there. Well, if Allah wanted me to be there, I, I would have put on my shoes and come. But no, 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 that's not what Paul's doing. He's not saying, if the Lord permits. He's not just throwing it away. He's saying, This is what I want to do. I want to leave room for the Lord's direction and where he's calling me and me, where he will move me. That's his approach to ministry. That's how we ought to approach our opportunities in the Lord. Remember James chapter 4? All you people going and saying, we're going to go to such and such a town, we're going to do business, we're going to make a profit, it's going to be great, it's going to be wonderful. He says, what are you? Your life is a mist, poof, and it's gone. Here's what you ought to do. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and go here. And we leave it to the Lord. We leave room for what the Lord might call us to. You see, Christ calls each of us to serve him. And each of us have our own desires about what we would like to do or what we might be gifted in. Some of you might be gifted in uh, leading a kindergarten Sunday school class. 
Somebody else breaks out in hives at the thought of working with children. Somebody else wants to send uh, letters of encouragement. And maybe you're gifted in evangelism or helping behind the scenes. And you've got your callings, you've got your desires. But part of treating ministry like it doesn't belong to you is leaving room for God to change your plans. Sometimes he does that by putting us in circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves. Last week, we prayed for Alan McClure. You may remember that. Alan is a pastor in our presbytery who uh, just last weekend retired from ministry due to early-onset Alzheimer's. And in his letter of resignation, uh, retirement, however you would would put it, uh, he said that he's stepping down because he can no longer be the pastor he desires to be for his congregation. Folks, no man entering the pastorate desires to end up in that situation. And it breaks your heart to think of some of the goals and the aspirations that Alan might have had for his ministry that will never be accomplished. But if it breaks our heart because we look at that and we say, what a shame that Alan's ministry is over, we've missed the point. Alan's ministry was never Alan's ministry. My ministry has never been my ministry. It belongs to the Lord. It was a beautiful thing at our presbytery meeting last weekend when the elders of his church stood up and they said, we want our minister to become ministered to. What does that mean? That means Christ's ministry continues. Vadi Bakum uh, is a, a pastor, uh, a Reformed Baptist pastor, and there's a quote from him that reminds me when my head gets a little bit too big in ministry. He says, God buries the minister and carries on the mission." This is what the Lord does. It's his ministry. And now there are different opportunities at the Miller's Falls Covenant Church. Christ's ministry is continuing. Lord willing, another man's going to take Alan's place. Is it sad? Yes. Does it break our hearts? Yes. We pray that the Lord would be gracious to his family in this time of trial. Absolutely. But Christ's ministry there hasn't deteriorated. It hasn't imploded. Sometimes our plans for serving the Lord end up that way. Ask around in our church. You can find people that found themselves, even in the last few years, in situations they would never have planned, never have prayed for, and certainly never wanted. Yet in the midst of those situations, there is a blessing of unexpected ministry sometimes. Ministry to hospital staff that just happen to be listening. Ministry to those children that are already grown and established and gone, and yet something happens in their lives that reminds them that their lives aren't as put together as they thought they were, and suddenly they're back. And they need some help, and they need some encouragement. And it's not something you wanted, it's not something you prayed for, but it's the ministry the Lord has given you. There's ministry to that abrasive co-worker that you never thought you could reach. But they come in to work one day, somehow sensitized, and you weren't ready for it. You'd already put up a wall thinking, uh, this is a worthless endeavor. This ship has sailed. And suddenly the Lord opens a door, and it's unexpected, isn't it? But you know, each of those ministries will fall apart if we're so busy sitting there with a sour taste in our mouth because things didn't turn out the way we thought they should have. That's what Paul's telling us. Here's what it means to treat ministry like it doesn't belong to you, that you are willing to serve wherever the Lord will call you in whatever circumstance he'll put you in, that you leave room for God to change your plans. That's what Paul was prepared for. 
The question is, are you? Maybe your ministry is to be a witness in your school. You feel a desire to tell your friends about Jesus, but you know what? They'd probably think that you're foolish if you did that. Don't judge your opportunities by the opposition. What does Paul say? I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He doesn't say, but. Some translations take that. He doesn't say, well, the opportunities would be better if there weren't all these adversaries. He says, no, these are both there at the same time. A wide door for effective work and many adversaries. And we know it's true. There were riots and there were threats in Ephesus, even as the word of God was growing mightily. Paul faced division and hostility in Corinth, yet he said, I want to be with you if the Lord will allow. Ministry always works best when we treat it like it doesn't belong to us. And that means that we've got to be willing to serve where the Lord is working. Second, we've got to be willing to support those who labor for Christ. Willing to support those who labor for Christ. In verses 10 and 11, Paul moves from his own plans for travel uh, to talking about the Corinthians and their responsibilities to Timothy when he shows up on their doorstep. Now, we know from Acts chapter 19, a little bit after where we stopped our reading today, uh, that when Paul was in Ephesus, he sent two of his uh, apprentices, Timothy and Erastus, uh, other missionaries out into Macedonia to check on the churches that were there. Uh, the, the church in Philippi, in Berea, in Thessalonica, and some of those churches in that area, in that region. We also know from 1 Corinthians 4 that by now, Timothy's probably passing through Macedonia, and he's on his way to Corinth. Who knows when he'll be there? Travel in the ancient world was dicey at best, but he's coming. He's going to be there, and, and Paul wants to remind Corinth that Timothy's coming, and more than that, he wants to give them instructions for how they are supposed to treat him. Three things, he tells them. See that you put him at ease among you. Do not despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That's an interesting set of responsibilities, especially that middle one. When Timothy shows up, don't pour contempt on the poor man. Uh, Don't be uh, harsh with him. That's an interesting list, but, uh, but basically Paul's telling the Corinthians that part of their ministry as a church is to be faithful to receive and to send those who are laboring in the Lord. There's a dynamic here that in the kingdom of God, there are some ministries that are going ministries like Paul's. There are some ministries that are sending ministries like the one that remained in Corinth. That's not to say that one is better than the other or that God likes goers more than he likes senders. They're both necessary. There are some missionaries that travel to Uganda. There are some people who stay and live and work and grow in their faith and encourage believers here in Massachusetts. And both of those are necessary for spreading the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. But Paul is clear. If you are a part of one of those ministries that stays put, you have responsibilities to those who go. You have a responsibility to see that they're taken care of, that they can get to where they need to be. An ascending ministry requires something special from a church. Two things I think we could say that it needs. First, it needs maturity on the part of the believers who were there. That first instruction that he gave them, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. Now our ESV uh, soft pedals the interpretation just a little bit. It really says something more like, uh, when he comes, see that he has no reason to be afraid among you. 
or as the New Living Translation has it, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. Can you imagine the church that needed to be told that? Of course, we know something about Corinth. By this point, we know that there were some pretty self-assured believers who had no problem telling Paul where they thought he ought to be and putting him in his place. And if they're going to do this to an apostle, what will they do when Timothy shows up? And maybe, as some of the scholars say, maybe Timothy was timid. Maybe it has to do with how young he is. That's what Paul wrote later in his letter. Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. So maybe he was young. Maybe he was timid. But either way, Paul's worried that the spiritual temperature in Corinth is going to make for a cold reception when Timothy shows up. So what's he telling them? Basically, he's telling them, grow up. So what if he's timid? So what if he's young? So what if his sermons are too long or too short or they're too chatty or they're too serious? Timothy's doing the work of the Lord, and he deserves your support. That's what he's telling them. That doesn't mean that every potential ministry who sends us a fundraising letter needs to have their pockets and their bank accounts full. There's some discernment that goes along with this. But we do need to be aware of how our own spiritual immaturity can cloud our view of the people that God is able to use in ministry. We need to be willing to step out on a limb sometimes to say, here's a good ministry moving in a good direction with good oversight, and we'll trust that the Lord will work. Sometimes that means we have to be a bit more mature. Sending ministry requires maturity, but it also requires sacrifice. When Paul said that the Corinthians were supposed to send Timothy or help Timothy on his way in peace, he wasn't talking about a hug and a handshake. He's talking about finances. He's talking about real sacrifice. He's using a technical term here that refers to the way that you would equip a traveler with food or with supplies or with money. Maybe you'd even send some traveling companions with him. You wouldn't just point him in the direction of the bus station and say, hope you make it there, Timothy. God be with you. No, no, no. You go with him if you can. You send supplies. You make sure that he's got what he needs. It's the same word, actually, that Paul used back in verse 6 to talk about himself. But here's the point. Paul expects the Corinthians to sacrifice resources. Resources that could have been used in Corinth for their ministry there. Wouldn't it be great if they could have a community center in Corinth and folks would come and there's the sign, First Church of Corinth, and they can see it and it'd be great. But he says you need to use some of the resources there to send that man on his way. I'm expecting him and here's a responsibility that you have. He's calling them to sacrifice. Now let me say, By the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, this sending ministry is an area that Redeemer Church excels. This is not something that we are just good with because of ourselves, but something the Lord has been doing in us from the very beginning. From the very beginning of this congregation as a church, we have desired to be a part of men training for the ministry, like our interns, and sending and supporting missionaries. This week, I was preparing for our annual meeting tonight. And I found in the office an informational packet. I've already sent it to the deacons, and they've had a good laugh about it. An informational packet from the annual meeting of January 1999. And so it had the budgets there for 1998, 20 years ago, and it had the budget there for 1999. And in 1999, Redeemer's combined budget for missions and seminary interns, five seminary interns, by the way, Their combined budget for missions and seminary interns was $40,600. That's pretty good for a brand new church. 
five interns, $40,000, that's great. And there's a line there in the information packet that with God's help, Redeemer hopes and, and plans and desires to increase year-on-year year giving for missionaries. I know some of you aren't able to come to the meeting tonight, and I don't want to ruin the surprise for those who are, but folks, if you were to take those same two categories for the budget that's going to be presented tonight, here's the number. from a church with an annual budget of about $310,000. $150,000 given to missions work at RUF Boston and Yukon and church planning in Dorchester and missionaries in Uganda and Japan and Latin America and Clinton, Massachusetts and all over the place. Why? Because God's people are mature and sacrificial givers. This is your ministry. What a blessing that the Lord is at work among us. But you know, this is the kind of sacrifice that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense if Christian ministry is just about us. If it just belongs to us. If the point of what we're doing is just to build a name for ourselves. There are different ministry opportunities that can happen when you have a facility, and we'll talk about that tonight. There are different things that happen, but but treating ministry like it doesn't belong to us means that we are willing to support those who labor in the Lord. And it only makes sense if we understand that the church belongs to Jesus Christ, that he has purchased his people by his blood, that he is the one who's made the sacrifice. And any sacrifice that he calls us to is simply a reflection of what he's already done in our lives and a willingness to be a part of what he's doing and to to rejoice that he calls us to be a part of his ministry. So this is what it means to treat ministry like it doesn't belong to us, that we would be willing to support those who labor in the Lord. Now last in verse 12, we see that ministry works best when we're willing to accept who the Lord appoints, that we're willing to accept who the Lord appoints. Now, finally, we come to Paul's mention of Apollos. And quite frankly, we don't have a lot to work with here. Uh, And and what is most intriguing about Paul's mention of Apollos now at the end of his letter is everything that he leaves out. Apollos is a big deal in Corinth. If you remember back a year and a half now, all the way to chapter 1, One of the main divisions in Corinth was the division between the people who said, I follow Paul, and the people who say, I follow Apollos. And they've got their clique, and they've got their little niche group who wants to follow them. People loved Apollos in Corinth. And there's a split there. And it also seems, from what we have, that the Corinthians had been asking about Apollos. Verse 12 begins, now concerning. This is a language that Paul has used throughout his letter to talk about questions that were coming to him from Corinth. You remember some of them. Now, concerning food offered to idols. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, and we may surmise, concerning our brother Apollos, about whom you've been asking because you want him to come back, and what does Paul do? Well, he hardly says anything. Aside from, well, I wanted him to go, but he wasn't willing. Now, the brevity of this explanation has nothing to do with any sort of animosity between Paul and Apollos. It's clear, Paul regards Apollos as a brother in Christ, a fellow laborer in God's field. He said in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, that Paul planted and Apollos watered, but it's really the Lord who makes it grow. 
Paul's not trying to minimize Apollos or his ministry or to write him off as though he were unimportant. So what's he doing? Well, I think by way of quick mention, whether he uh, intended it to be read this way or not, he is telling the Corinthians, he's reminding them that God's ministry continues even when our favorite ministers are out of the picture. It's amazing how people in a church can get so fixated on one pastor, one small group leader, one Sunday school teacher, one elder, and they are the epitome of godliness, and they can do no wrong in their eyes. Now, often it happens uh, because those people who draw a crowd are men that the Lord has gifted, just as he gifted Apollos. What's it say in Acts 18? Apollos was an eloquent man and competent in the Scriptures. Praise the Lord for eloquent men who are competent in the Scriptures. Praise the Lord for the John Pipers and the Sinclair Fergusons and the John Calvins and the whoever else you happen to like. It's great that the Lord has given such faithful men. The Lord often does mighty things in people that you would overlook at first glance. The Lord often does mighty things in those shy, quiet Sunday school teachers in the way that they faithfully teach children year after year after year after year. And everybody in the church up to the age of 32 has gone through that class. And they all remember, remember when we were there and there was the flannel graph and we saw these things and wasn't it great? And what faithfulness and what ministry. And you would look at that person maybe and say, they're not going to speak at a conference anytime soon. The Lord often uses the faithful ministry of lifelong friends in the gospel to affect a change in his people much more than those one-off sermons that you come away from saying, whoa, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Here's an encouragement, and it ought to move in two directions. Okay? For one, it ought to remind us not to overlook the ministers that God has put all around us. They might not be the best thing and the greatest thing for the church since sliced bread. They might not be as impressive as your favorite mega-preacher. God is able to do wonderful things through those that you might overlook. And the other encouragement is that maybe the Lord's able to call you to a ministry that you were sure ought to have been given to somebody more impressive. If our ministry belongs to the Lord and not to us, we can be willing to accept whoever he uses to fill those slots, even if he uses you. And so that's what it means to treat ministry like it doesn't belong to us that we're willing to accept whoever the Lord has called. We're willing to support those who labor in the church. We're willing to serve ourselves where the Lord calls us. Folks, let's pray that the Lord would grow us each in these graces to treat his ministry with white-gloved hands, knowing that it's not ours, but to rejoice in the wonderful work that he does in us and through us and for the sake of his name. Please pray with me. O Lord of glory and grace, thank you for the ministry that you have to us. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross of Calvary to purchase your people and your church, to give us promises that we can see in baptism in the Lord's Supper. Help us today, O Lord, to come again to your sacraments in faith that you are able to work. We come not bringing our own ministry, but we come partaking of your ministry to us. And in partaking, we are united together with you and with one another. Help us, O Lord, to grow in these things.
to rejoice in the ministry that you have for us and to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.